This episode is brought to you in part by Regent College, Vancouver, Canada. Experience God's call to a life more abundant with our one to two week summer courses. Sign up today at rgnt.net slash summer. Hey listeners, I am excited to announce that Cultivated has its first sponsor. This episode today is brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible. The CSB blends accuracy and readability, giving pastors a translation they can trust and lay people a Bible they can enjoy. You can find out more at csbible.com. On with the show. What did you think you'd be doing? I imagine you didn't have this on your radar. Definitely not. I wanted to be a lawyer. Rochelle Starr is the founder and executive director of Scarlet Hope. Scarlet Hope works to bring the gospel to women in the adult entertainment industry, and they literally do this. They go to them. They go into strip clubs with home-cooked meals to meet, serve, and love the women who work there. I went to school, did some pre-law requisites at Ivy Tech to see if I could get into the program um, at IU, and I loved that, and I thought I would actually be a juvenile attorney. Hmm. So that's kind of what I was, I guess, thought my dreams would be, and even to this day I say often, like, that's what I should have been. (laughs) But, you know, what we should have been and what God actually calls us to is very different. (laughs) That's interesting, though. I mean, if you wanted to be a juvenile lawyer, you've always had an eye out for the underprivileged and... Mm -hmm. Yeah, justice is a really deep core value of mine hmm. that I have always had. My parents, when I was growing up, had foster children, but had kids from all walks of life that were nobody wanted them. And so that's why I, I think that's where I got my like fight for people attitude. I just really hmm. learned how to t- see value in everybody and then want to fight for that. But no, I would never have guessed that this is where this is, would lead me years later. There's a pine wobbler sitting on a hollow limb. He seems to have the whole morning out right in front of him. And everything he sings from the branch that he's sitting on, it seems to hush the leaves and the colors all around. Now first he sings and then he goes. And what it means, it's hard to know. You're listening to Cultivated, conversations about faith and work. I'm Mike Cosper, and on today's show, I'm talking to Rochelle Starr. We'll talk about what led her to walk through the doors of a strip club one Thursday night 10 years ago, and the incredible things that have happened ever since. We'll also talk about the challenges that exist for women coming out of the industry and the innovative pathways Scarlet Hope is building to help them out. Stay with us. dental hygienist by trade. That's what I ended up going to school at USF for. But I didn't do that long because as soon as I moved here, I actually got recruited into advertising and marketing for a media company in Louisville. So they would just, this company wanted me to be the face of their company. So I started doing all their commercials, advertising for them and all that. And I loved that. Mm -hmm. I thought it was so fun. I learned how to do marketing. I learned how to lead accounts, how to sell. And so I really loved that. But there was still a discontent part of me 
that really wanted to do something to fight for people and to, you know, bring value to people that didn't think they were valued. A big part of what you have to do is you have to be the face of this organization. Right. And so that was probably a formative experience as well. I mean, I was literally like plucked out of this. My husband was working at Northside and this guy came in and he said, you know, would your wife ever be interested in a job? And my husband was like, I don't, she's a high, I mean, she's a dental person. I don't know. And he asked me, told me what the job was, offered me way more money. And I was like, okay. (laughs) (laughs) And now, yeah, like you said, looking back on it, I mean, I learned everything I needed to know now for this ministry. I learned at that job and much more you know, from other places too, but I'm talking about business sense. Like I learned, they let me do so many things that I just, by the grace of God, I got to learn, you know? Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah. How long were you there? I was there from 2006 to 2010, so four years. And the Lord called me to start Scarlet Hope in 2007. Okay. So it was a year after I was there. So you kept doing the work for three years before before Scarlet Hope Mm -hmm. got going. I never intended to start a nonprofit or a ministry. I really didn't. That isn't exactly what I thought that was going to go. But through just praying and asking the Lord, like, okay, God, though I'm in the workplace, I can still be used for your glory. I can still be used to help people. What does that look like? So from 2006 to 2007, I would like pick up every homeless person on the side of the road. And (laughs) most of that was a bad idea. (laughs) (laughs) Hell yes, there is one particular woman that I picked up at Exit Zero in Southern Indiana. And I was coming across the bridge to come into work. And I told her I would take her to get something to eat. And then we would go to a shelter. And at first, she thought that was a great idea. And then when we were on the Second Street Bridge, she did not think that was a great idea and jumped out of my car. Oh, wow. And While it was moving. Yeah. And I was, like, scared to death because, I, you know, I was like, I didn't know if people would think it was my fault she jumped out. You know, I had no idea. So needless to say, I pulled over. She got back in my car. I brought her the rest of the way, and then I left her at McDonald's. And I remember very clearly God saying, Nope, this isn't exactly what I'm calling you to. Like, you can keep doing this, but. Yeah. yeah. Where does your capacity for risk come from? Because you put yourself, I mean, we'll get into some of this, I'm sure, but you put yourself in risky situations. Well, I first think it starts with I'm not really scared of dying. Hmm. So when I was a young girl, I was three years old, I got a disease that nearly killed me. And it didn't go away till I was nine years old. And in that period of my life, I never once, now, when you're three years old, you don't really remember much, but five, six, seven, eight, I do. I never once thought I was going to die, despite what the doctors were telling my parents. And so I just, and then when I I became a Christian when I was eight and gave my life to the Lord, the doctors told my parents, like, this is it. You're, you're, like, we have no other medicine. Nothing else can help her. And what was the disease? It was called scleroderma, which okay. actually it's scleroderma awareness month. But I w- I had this disease and uh, my dad had, my parents had exhausted all their resources and all of this. And, but I never once thought like, this is, you're going to die. So I think this, this idea of like, I'm not afraid to take risks. I'll go talk to anybody on the street. I know that whenever I'm gone from this earth, like I'm going to be in the best place for eternity. And so Having an eternal perspective is 
is significant in Mm -hmm. order to take risks. And I mean, I could talk about that for a really long time, but that's really, I think, where it comes from is that I have had near-death experiences. I I did nearly, the doctor said, you know, you're not going to make it past your 10th birthday. And I'm 34, so. What, how did you get healed? Yeah, so my dad was at a little bitty church in Joplin, Missouri, well, right outside of Joplin, and he took me to the elders of the church, and when I say it was the last thing that they tried, it was truly the last thing they tried. And the elders of the church took an oil, anointed my head, had me kneel down, and they prayed over me. And six months later, I was 100% healed of the disease. Wow. He pro- God probably healed me that night. Yeah. But I only went to the doctor every six months, so I didn't find out for about six months that I was healed. And when the doctors came in to the room and told my parents all of my testing had come back clear, I mean, they had never seen anything like that at the children's hospital that I was at. And my parents told him the Lord healed me. And mm. I know that God set me apart for a reason and a purpose, and He wouldn't have saved me for you know when I was that young for nothing. And... I think, too, I mean, I have a pretty keen sense of awareness around me. So I don't know. I, if I sense the Holy Spirit saying not to do something, then I, I won't do it. But if the Lord says to go, and even if it's risky to most people, I'm going. So 2007, May, I had been driving down from southern Indiana into Louisville every day to go to work, and I had been praying and fasting with my husband that God would call me to a particular people. He was even willing, because he does design work, he can really go wherever he wants. And so if it was Africa, it was Thailand, wherever it was, he'd be willing to go with me. So I was driving down the road, and there's a Theater X in Clarksville that I had passed forever. Mm-hmm. The only thing I knew about this place was that there was a woman at my church that had told me that when she passed that place, her and her children would turn their faces from there because it was disgusting and despicable, and they wished that it would shut down mm-hmm. and all this stuff. And it's like an adult bookstore, yeah. peep show, yes, the whole nine yards. whole nine yards, it, yeah. And so I happened to be driving down the road this day, and I was just bebopping into work, praying, and the Lord turned my gaze towards the building. And all I remember hearing was God saying, I want you to go and share my hope and love with women in the sex industry. Well, here's the deal. I'm from smaller towns, so I didn't really know what the sex industry was. I knew what prostitution was by the Bible and stories that my parents you know, would tell me or whatever, but I didn't know anything about the sex industry. So... I immediately called my husband and told him, God just told me that I have to minister to women into the sex industry. And to my surprise, he literally said, that is exactly what Jesus would do. And I was like, you know, I had told him about the homeless people and he would say, don't pick them up anymore, Rochelle. (laughs) I would tell him all these things I was doing and he would be like, please stop doing that. And this he didn't. And I was like, oh, okay, this is this is truly from the Lord, especially because I didn't know anything about it. So I started researching, figuring out, okay, are there churches ministering to women in the sex industry? What's going on in Louisville? And I learned that Louisville was the fifth largest sex industry per capita in America. 
And I was like, what? Like, we have the largest Christian churches ever that I've ever seen. So I started calling churches and I started saying, you know, are you guys ministering to prostitutes? Do you guys go to strip clubs and minister to these people? And as you can imagine, like, I was totally rejected. Like, that was clearly a dumb idea. So I just decided it was in 2008. Well, in 2007, we did prayer drives around the strip clubs. So me and a couple of my friends would go down every Tuesday night, and we would pray outside of the strip clubs. And that's all the only place I knew to start. So then in 2008... Because um, none of the churches were engaged. No. Yeah. I mean, human trafficking wasn't even really talked about. Like today, it's everywhere. People, it's, you know, it's the social social justice thing to do, but... Nobody really knew what was going on. So churches just told me, there's a sign out in our parking lot. If they want to come, they know where we're at. I thought, I'm seeing a different, in the, when I'm studying scripture, I'm seeing a completely different Jesus here. So what is that? How does that line up? What does that do to, you know, what does that do? So in 2008, I told my best friend, I said, we're going to go into the clubs. We're going to, you know, God is really calling us to go into those places and show them there is a different way and show them there is a God who doesn't stand outside in judgment, but He meets them inside. And, and so with my risk nature, I didn't think anything about it, but like, we're just going to go in. So we did. So how how did you pick the first one? Like, did oh, you just yeah. like, was it was there like strategy? Like, oh, we'll <laughs> go here first, or was it, you know, close your eyes and point in the phone book and? Yeah. So there were twenty seven clubs in the Greater Louisville area, and we would go and pray out all of side of the, all of them. And there was a point in time in August of two thousand eight where I just felt like enough is enough research. Okay. <laughs> You cannot have all the pieces of the puzzle. You cannot have all... God isn't going to do that. Like, He just wants your obedience, and He wants your faith, and mm -hmm. for you to take the first step. Because you had been just trying to gather enough information yes. to feel safe and know feel what you Feel safe and know and get all the, the big picture. Yeah. What's the big picture? And, and you're like, I'm not going to have enough. I'm not. Yeah. So uh, it was on a Sunday night, and I called my three friends, and I said, will you guys go with me to the club on Tuesday? And they said... If you think we should, then all right. You know, everybody's scared to death. So we fasted from Sunday to Tuesday. Mm. On Tuesday, God gave us the name of the club that we should go to. Mm. And so we went to this one. And first of all, you need to know, being a pastor's kid, I know I'm not probably the most pure person on the planet, but I certainly did not know <laughs> anything about this, okay? Right. And so I brought some cash with me. I was wearing a turtleneck. I had no makeup on because <laughs> I did not want them to think I was there for a job. Right. And I just went in and paid $10 to get in the door. And the doorman was like, this is just too weird. Like, what are you all here for? And I said, well, the first thing I said was, could we find the bar? You know, I was just kind of like going with whatever the Lord would give me. But I knew if we could get a drink at the bar, we would kind of get our bearings. So I was yeah. like, let's just get a Sprite or a Coke. So we get up to the bar and the bartender is like, why are you and it's all? four of y'all. Right? Yeah, there's four of us. Yeah. So that's all kind of a lot. Right. We're all dressed like turtlenecks, no makeup. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and, and 
so this bartender looks at us and she goes, why are you all here? And I said, the only thing that came out of my mouth was, Jesus has sent us here to do something kind and loving for the women in this place. Can we bring a home-cooked meal in? Literally, that came from the Lord. I did not know what I was going to say when she asked me this question. I didn't know. You know, I wasn't prepared. And she looked at me, and she laughs, and she said, oh, that probably won't happen here. And I was like, okay, but I know the Lord has clearly asked us to be here. And so we talked to her. I got to know her. Hey, how long you been here? You know, blah, blah, blah. And she's just kind of just think we're super weird. So... A little bit later, I go over to the different side of the club with my three friends, and we're sitting at this table. And this, I mean, just to get the yeah, picture clear. get the picture. They're, like, there are women dancing. Women dancing, loud music, tons of men, multiple bars, black lights. Like, the whole thing is very different yeah. to me. I mean, <laughs> you know, I'm just like, what is happening? Yeah, yeah. So I'm, like, in this middle of the strip club, and actually women were coming up to us asking if we wanted something. And I was like, no, but I used that as an opportunity to ask them how they were and and all that. And then all of a sudden, it is like loud in there. It is super loud. And my friend was talking across the table to me, and I mean, I just simply could not hear her. I heard the Holy Spirit say, go talk to this man. There was 50-ish men in there. We could have, it could have been anyone. And I went over and introduced myself to this man. I said, my name's Rochelle. I'm not here for a job. I'm here because God sent me to do something kind of loving for the women in this club. Can I bring a home-cooked meal? And anyways, he ended up being the owner of the club. And I mean, he was straight flabbergasted. You know, he told me later on, he said, before you all ever set foot in here, the only thing Christians did was stand outside, and they would hurl insults at the ladies or me or whoever. I don't understand why you guys would come in here. And I was like, well, these walls don't have power, you know, and 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 it was just so interesting how we got to immediately show them a different side of the Lord. He ended up giving us permission. He said, when can you come back? I said Thursday, so we went back two Thursdays later, and here we are, ten and a half years later, still doing it. So the home-cooked meal thing, yeah, that just burst out of your mouth. Yeah, I love to cook. I love to bake. So that literally just was like, everybody loves to eat. So it just yeah. like burst out of my mouth. I didn't even know. Wasn't a strategy. Wasn't a big plan. No, there was no strategy. I mean, if anything, we were thinking, actually, we probably should have been more like prepared. <laughs> 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 but the Lord just didn't, I just didn't look, you know, yeah. I'm not a details person. I'm a big vision person. Right. So it works though. And you're a risk taker. Yeah. You just jump in head first and you'll figure it out. Yeah. So I remember going back over to the girls and I said, we're in, we're in. Yeah. And he came over and I introduced him to the other three ladies. Yeah. And we stood there and talked to him for about an hour and 45 minutes and learned his story. People say to me all the time, like... Why do these strip club owners let you in? Well, what I realized that very day is the same hope or hopelessness that these women have is the same situation for him. He was a little boy. His parents owned the strip club, and they started bringing him to the strip club while they were working when he was young. He was groomed and grew into this man who he is today that does this. And really, he doesn't think he has any other choices. Though, you know, now he does. He knows he does. And so for context, Mm -hmm. we're 10 years later. Yeah. What's happening on Thursday nights? So 
We have four sets of outreaches now. So we have the strip club outreach, we have street outreach, we have prostitution outreach in this particular section of our city, and then we have a massage parlor outreach. Mm. But we also do that now in four other cities. That's all happening every Thursday. Now they know us, and they call. They started calling me the church lady <laughs> right away. Like, I didn't deem myself that. I would not have wanted that title, okay? <laughs> but they immediately started calling me the church lady, and everybody I was with, church ladies. So now when we walk in, we hear yells of, the church ladies are here mm. in almost every single club. And we set up wherever the owner tells us to set up, whether it's a dressing room or out in the bar area. And we serve them a meal exactly as we did 10 years ago, serve them a home-cooked meal. And we will often take a plate and go sit by them and just talk and get to know who they are and how their day was. And then offer opportunities. Like many of them now know we're a ministry and that we have a lot of resources. So that's kind of a thing they're constantly calling for. But we spend probably two to three hours every Thursday night in those clubs and on the streets and in the massage parlors. And literally it's sitting on the floor in a really nasty strip club. Oftentimes on Thursday nights, I'm sitting there. I'll be doing this tonight. I'll sit on the floor. And in some moments, God gives me this outer body experience almost where I'm like, I'm sitting on a dressing room floor that is so gross, but I have six women sitting around me in a circle wanting to just talk and getting to share the gospel and getting to share about how God has created them in His image and all these things that they want. And it's just an, it's a surreal experience still to this day. In our culture right now, strippers are often seen as empowered women people who have taken control of their sexuality. It's normalized and even glamorized. Shows like New Girl and How I Met Your Mother both featured characters who were strippers and presented them this way, strong, empowered, in control. But what Rochelle has seen is very different. One of the main reasons women end up in this sex industry is sexual abuse as a child. 95% is the national average of the women that are in this industry have been sexually abused. At Scarlet Hope, 100% of the women we have seen have been sexually abused before 18 and then four to five times after 18. So it's very much derived around their sexual identity. It's taking back power or trying the illusion there, mm -hmm. control of their lives, things like that. But it could be generational, mom, grandma, aunt, dad, everybody was in the sex industry or in drug addiction or something like that. But, you know, I have never, ever met a woman who told me from when she was a little girl she wanted to be a stripper or wanted to be a prostitute. That does not happen. And I think oftentimes I hear from the outside, like people like, you know, Christians and stuff is say, well, that's their choice. Well, not really. I mean, truly, it really isn't. Maybe no one's sitting there holding a gun to their head while they're dancing, but there's mental chains, there's psychological chains that have been decades long in these girls' lives. So it's about, you know, figuring out what it is that causes them to go into this industry and how can we start working on that to, to combat whatever that lie is that they're hearing. If you get sucked into this industry, you are getting into addiction of some sort, which starts a, a different behavioral pattern in your life. How you live becomes very different. So there is a 
small percentage that make this their career. They love what they do. So they say they love what they do. And they have children. They may even go to church. I mean, they live this really? life that is, to them, like the movies. Mm-hmm. But even those women have been abused in their childhood. I actually am working with two women right now that are in their 40s, and they've been dancing since they were 20, and they were sexually abused as children, and they decided that they were going to redeem all of that, right, and take that back for themselves, and they live, you would never, they look, I mean, you would never even know that they, that was their lifestyle. They don't do drugs. They don't drink. They go into work, they leave, they take care of their kids, they do this. But that's a very small percentage. Yeah. The work is hard. It's constantly an uphill battle, and it's met with all kinds of opposition. But God shows up, and dramatic changes have taken place in people's lives. Rochelle told me one of these stories. It's about a woman named Mary. So Mary is, man, Mary's just such a gem. She's a diamond in the rough, honestly. Met her when she was 49 years old at a club here in Louisville. We were serving dinner, and she was completely in awe that Christians would come into her place. She cried. I remember we prayed with her the first time we met her. 49 years old, she had And she was still a dancer. She was still a dancer, yes. At 49. Yeah. Yes, at 49. Another thing people I don't think realize. The is... average age is 38. Wow. So most people do not realize that. Yeah. If the movies paint this as a completely different situation here, but, right. you know, reality is much different. So 49 years old, we started getting to know her. Our team started working with her and realized that she had been severely abused her whole life. Never would have identified her in the beginning as a trafficking victim, but we have since learned and she was identified as a trafficking victim, a part of a trafficking ring when she was 12 years old. Um, Her parents sold her to a guy that was three times her age at the time, and he sold her all around the country. And then because she's from here, she ended up back here and never learned to read or write, didn't graduate high school, didn't get a diploma, none of that. Fast forward, she's 35 years old, does not know how to read or write. Her pimp dies, and she's like, all I know is the strip club. So that's why she kept finding herself in the strip clubs. Plus, that's comfortable after you've been in that so long, you know, for her anyways, that was. So we started ministering to her when she was 49. I took her home one night, and I asked her if I could bring her things in for her because she had a really bad back, and she told me no. And I said, Mary, just let me bring them in for you. Like, it's okay. I don't mind wherever you live. It's fine. And so she was so mortified because she was actually living in the backyard of a home down on the riverfront with a mud floor, a blue tarp as a roof, It might as well have been a dog's house. I mean, that's truly what it looked like. And the people that lived there were charging her $200 to rent that shack. And so we went in and I mean, of course, I'm just, the world turned upside down for me. How could this be possible? And so started working with her and the more we pressed into her, the more she wanted to 
go further and further away. And now I realize that is shame and all of those things that she had never thought that she was worthy of. Love and all the stuff caused her to actually go away from us. And so we lost track of her. About, I don't know, six months later, we went back into the club and we had remembered her birthday. We hadn't seen her, but we brought a birthday cake just in case we would see her. And she so happened to be at the club on that night. So we brought in the birthday cake and she fell to her knees, repented, gave her life to the Lord and left the clubs that night. She's been out ever since. She's 58 in August and she's now a Scarlet Hope staff member. And she ended up going back to UofL. She taught herself to read or write. She wrote a book, her own autobiography about human trafficking and how that impacted her life. I mean, it's just incredible. It's absolutely incredible. Her book is called A Harlot's Cry. And God has just done immense, immense work in Mary's life. Before we get back to the episode, I want to take a minute to tell you about our sponsor, the Christian Standard Bible. As you know, today I'm talking with Rochelle, and ministries like hers that are aimed at the streets connect with people who want to follow Jesus but struggle to engage Him in God's Word. The language in some translations is just archaic or needlessly complex, and believers give up in frustration, which affects their growth. And let's face it, lots of Christians experience this. I experience this. And that's why I love what the Christian Standard Bible has done. It blends pinpoint accuracy with a reading experience that makes engaging the Word pleasurable and easy. Reading the Bible shouldn't be a chore. Learn more about this much-needed translation at csbible.com. That's csbible.com. Back to the show. Do you see a lot of folks who just can't imagine doing anything different? Is that the majority? Yeah, most of them could not imagine not having that security net. The industry has an interesting culture, it creates a culture of all of the unwanted has-beens find community. And, you know, what we realize is obviously that everybody longs for community. Everybody wants to be in community of some sort. And so they'll find it one way or the other. Lots of women who have had horrible parents find comfort in someone or something at the club, and that becomes their new family. And so whenever we even suggest leaving or which, you know, we don't really, I care about them knowing the Lord more than I care about them leaving a club because I believe that my philosophy is if they know Jesus, He'll convince them that their lifestyle needs to change, right? But we offer opportunities to get new jobs. Yeah. And most of them say, well, I'd like to do both. Like, can I do this new job and work at night? Because they're so scared of making that change. And so, yeah, that's the majority of yeah. many of them. Yeah. And then there's there's sort of control personalities that that run inside the clubs, both like pimps, yeah. and then there's there's women. Like, mm-hmm. can you describe some of those dynamics? A lot of our strip clubs are owned and operated by women that either have formerly been in the industry and they grew into being an owner of a club, or they own the club. They're themselves a pimp. And most people find that very interesting, actually. And I thought it was interesting in the beginning. But a lot of the women that come into the industry, well, here's another fact, is that they're independent contractors. So they control everything they do. They don't have to be controlled. So when you have lost control, like let's go back to the abuse for a little bit. When you've lost control in your life as a child, 
you can gain control here because it gives this false illusion that you are in control of your time that you come in, your money, what you do in the clubs, all of those things, you're in control of those things. It really, I mean, the enemy has provided this environment, this culture that gives them exactly what they want or what they're looking for. When you say the illusion of control, this is this is the dancers that, oh, yeah. that have this. Within the clubs, how much is, again, back to sort of the pop culture mm-hmm. distinctions, it's like, well, I'm a stripper, I'm not a prostitute. <laughs> how much is that reality on the ground in terms of, you know, how much prostitution is happening in the clubs and... You know, in the clubs, it's a lot harder to, I'd say, identify. Most of the people that are going to do that leave the clubs. So they meet in the club and then, you know, they leave the clubs. But prostitution is a very, very rampant thing in our city and every city I know. But as far as prostitution in strip clubs, it's super hard to identify because it is illegal. Sure. You know, I'm not saying every club tries to maintain their... uh, you know, legal laws, but I do think that it's harder. I would say if I were to put a, I get asked this question, if I were to put a percentage on prostitution in like strip clubs and massage parlors, it's probably about 50-50. But within the industry, women who are strippers never want to be called prostitutes. And women who are prostitutes obviously wouldn't call themselves strippers. So they level themselves up. I hear it all the time. Oh, I would never be her. I would never do what she does. Interesting. So they have their own hierarchy of how bad is too bad. And even that goes to say for the strip clubs, how what club is worse than another. Hmm. If you go to that club, oh, you know you're doing this and you're doing this and you're yeah. doing that. Our love of the law, right? Like the heart, the human heart's love of the law yeah. is like... Well, it's like the parable of the Pharisee and the and oh, the yeah. publican. You know, hey, God, at least I'm not as bad as the stripper down the street because they're doing drugs and they're doing prostitution. Exactly. And, I'm. Like, I point it back to me. Like my sin in my life is no different than what you're doing. Okay, yours is outwardly, and you can see it, yeah. <laughs> and we can identify that right here and now. <laughs> but um, I don't know. I think we all can just put you know, this is worse than this and all this kind of stuff. And I tell them a lot. I told a girl last night at the foot of the cross, we are literally all the same. And so I don't really care if she's prostituting and you're stripping. It's still the same. The sin is it's sin, you know. Today, as Rochelle mentioned, they're not just working in strip clubs. They're working in massage parlors and they're working on the streets with prostitutes. She said it's been a natural progression to get there. And one of the reasons it's happened is because the whole industry is changing. So the iPhone actually has had a lot to do with it, believe it or not, because when we started, we didn't have the accessibility that we have today. And so a lot of, I project that in five years, we will see way less strip clubs Hmm. because why would you go work for an establishment like that and pay a fee to the owner when you can do whatever you want yourself as fast as you want and make as much money as you want? So, so like Uber for strippers. Absolutely. I mean, that, and there's tons of sites like that, you know, unfortunately. And so the progression of what we have done is this accessibility has also caused women who did, let's just say, just dance for money. Well, they're, the woman beside her will do more than that for less money. So it's caused this like even hierarchy of, of exchanges in the, in the industry. So 
lots of women have ended up on the streets because of that. And so we just naturally saw where the ladies were going and saw that massage parlors were opening up. Some interesting numbers for us is 27 strip clubs when we started. There are 19 now. But there were only three massage parlors. There's 25 now. And we estimated, and this this was back in 2007, the police department had done surveys on prostitution because they were doing prostitution stings. They would estimate about 500 prostitutes on the street. Now there's about 1,000 or more. So our outreaches go where they're at. So mm-hmm. our street outreach is phenomenal. I love it. I love it because there's no pretenses. These girls are, we don't have to worry about an owner of a club. We don't have to worry about if we say this or if we say that. And we just get to say, hey, there's help, hope right now, right yeah. now. So you literally just show up on the streets literally with food. and Food and a little gift bag that has resources in it for her yeah. and roses. And we just go out on Thursdays and pull over and stop. And we ask if we can pray for them. And 90% of the ladies that we talk to want prayer right then and there on the street, which is amazing to me. When she started in 2007, she couldn't find many ministries doing anything similar to her. But since then, they've seen outreach to the industry explode. We've trained hundreds at this point, but we have Scarlet Hopes in Cincinnati, Las Vegas, and Reno. And those started primarily just through people being trained up under Scarlet Hope, we building a connection there, and then they were either they either moved to that city or and wanted, you know, felt called by God to do the same thing. So one of the things that I think has also helped is People in the beginning would say to me, you're kind of crazy for doing this. I mean, I had friends write me letters that said to me, you're going to turn into them. You'll be like them. The enemy's going to drag you down, da, 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 da. And I was like, you know, just toss those away and okay. And then I had the same people, some of the same people writing me letters years later that said, wow, forgive me. And I'm like... You know, so it took a while for Christians and people in the church world, I think, to get on board with this idea. So then it just started spreading, and, yeah. you know, people want to help people, really. What's it like for a woman to come out of the industry into the church? How do the churches receive them? Yeah, this is my favorite part because, you know, we're a parachurch organization. We want to be a bridge to the local church, but many churches aren't ready for this population of people to go into their church. They haven't, from the top down, I suppose, said we're a safe place for this. and we Because a lot of times a woman gets saved, but she's still working in the clubs. Yeah, that could be very... <laughs> that's happened, absolutely. Yeah. And people question, is she really saved? Well, that's not for me to judge or them. them, But so one of the things, though, is that the local churches that we've gotten on board with us, just even in, okay, woman from the club, this is a safe church, gospel-centered church that we believe in, that we want to connect you with. And then it takes a while for her to learn and trust, like, the process. And most of the time it starts with us as a team doing what we say we're gonna do. So 
you know, getting churches involved and getting women that are from the industry to, to go into a church is actually kind of a big deal. People think this is a funny saying, but this is truly what they believe. Many of the ladies that I serve will say, if I walk into that building, the building will fall down. And they they really believe that. And, you know, I used to think, oh, just joke with them. No, that's not true. But they, they like at their core, believe that God is not big enough for them, that they've their sin and their stuff that they've done in their life is way too bad for, for God. And so being able to just be a bridge to the local church and welcome that slow transition. So starting with many women want to know the Lord and repent and confess and come to the Lord in the club. Mm-hmm. From that to the local church, we're talking about two to three years. Wow. And people within the church circle say, well, they should be connected right away. Well, yeah, we are connecting them right away, but that doesn't mean they want to go right away. Mm-hmm. We actually have quite a few women that have been sexually abused in the church. And those are the hardest ones that, you know, we pray for God's redemption in that area, but those are the ones that probably won't ever set foot in a traditional church. And so, you know. Wow. I wouldn't have imagined that it would take two to three years to get from the club to the church, even after a confession of faith. Yeah. They come to Bible study. They trust us. But that church piece is a really hard step for them. We have probably 30 women members of local churches. So they're coming to the Bible study. Are they... Are you guys able to help them find other work in the midst of that? Or yeah. is that, yeah. and how, how big of a role is that in what you do? So now we have our career development program. So we're actually hiring them out of the industry. Okay. So we can hire 20 women a year, wow. which doesn't sound like a lot, but 20 women that we're paying pretty substantially so they can support their kids. We're providing all their resources and all, you know, all of that transportation needs, things like that. But then beyond the 20, that we'll do job placements. So we're doing those all over the city and everything like that. But the transitional job program that we created a year and a half ago through Scarlet's Bakery provides a job for 18 months. It provides for all their care, all their medical care, all their counseling. Tell us what Scarlet's Bakery is. Back up for a second here. Okay. (laughs) How did you open Scarlet's Bakery? Yeah, so Scarlet's Bakery started in 2015. And I was looking for a way. I said to myself, if we want these women to stop doing this, like ultimately, like I said, that's not the main goal. But every woman who comes to get to know us says, I don't want to be here anymore. So if we want to help them truly, we got to replace that that money source because that's why they're going there. And so we started Scarlet's Bakery as a social enterprise to help employ them and give them transition time. Think about a woman who works at night. Now she's working during the day. That's a major transition. A woman who was on heroin now can't get heroin, you know, isn't isn't on drugs anymore. And how does she relate to people? Walking through all those transitions with them is what Scarlet's Bakery and our job training program is about. So we employ 20 a year. We'd like to employ more. Just, you know, funding is a huge thing. And then they're employed for 18 months. And then we help get them into three different tracks, education, further training, or we will hire them at the bakery for full-time work. Okay. Yeah. 
And what, what kind of work does the bakery do? I mean, obviously you have a bake shop. Yes. But you're doing catering and stuff mm-hmm. like that as well. Catering. We make desserts. We make wedding cakes. We cater yeah. weddings. We cater events, luncheons, all sorts of things. That's fantastic. We're trying to get them as many skills and opportunities as we can so that it can be transferable to many different places. So lots of customer service training is done so that if they were to go work in a doctor's office, they would mm. have customer service etiquette. We're doing all of those skill training so that they can have a lot of development when they leave us. That's great. Yeah. What are one or two like of the most significant misconceptions that Christians have about women in the industry? I think one misconception is that they want to be there. Okay, yeah, maybe some of them do, but the reality is most of them don't. And I can attest to that by how many women call us to help them get jobs all of the time. And there's not even enough jobs out there that we could, you know, get them. But so that they want to be there, that's a huge myth. Um, I think another misconception is, well, I get told all the time that it's so dangerous what we do. And interestingly enough, the industry has protected me more than it has not. For instance, when I'm in the club, the bartenders and the bouncers, they will kick people. If a, if a guy says something rude to us, like, you guys are Christians, you don't know what you're doing in here, or whatever, that they get kicked out. I mean, there's a huge misconception that this is like such a dangerous ind- industry and these people are dangerous. And I do think that it does bring danger. Don't sure. get me wrong. I'm not naive. <laughs> I've been around it enough. Yeah. But I mean, you've had people pull knives on you. And... Yeah, we've had dangerous situations. Right. We've had, <laughs> yeah. But more times than not, it's not, these people are not as dangerous as everybody says that they are. Like, why yeah. would you associate yourself with them or whatever? I don't know. I could think of more, but. Has there been ministry to the men that are in the clubs as a result of all this? Yeah, definitely. Um, So. We've mis- been able to minister to customers, to bouncers, to bartenders. I actually just had a bouncer from a club come to Sojourn four weeks ago with my husband and I. And yes, it's a byproduct of it. I mean, obviously our goal is the ladies, but I can't even tell you how many men say to me, I've been watching you all come in here. I don't know what it is about you guys, but what you guys have or what you guys do is amazing. And I want... I want to know where do you go to church? How can I get involved? Men give us donations all the time in the club. Really? <laughs> yes, they're like, please keep doing the work you're doing. You know, penance, I guess. I don't know. But I mean, yeah. It's like, it's like paying indulgences. Yeah. Like, we'll pay the church ladies while we're. <laughs> it's kind of awkward. And I used to say, no, 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 keep your money or whatever. But, uh, God has done some miraculous things with bouncers, bartenders, and customers. And uh, a customer gave his life to the Lord in the club one night and left. And he, I mean, for what he told us is he was going to go home and tell his wife what he had been doing. And hopefully that marriage was restored. That's what we prayed and believed. And we never saw him again. So I I would hope that that would be the truth. But uh, we've also had owners come to know the Lord. I mean, we've Here's the thing. God is a really big God. (laughs) He does really cool things whenever you're sitting there and just letting Him do His thing. I would never want to be anywhere else. 
people say, why are you, why do you, how can you still do this 11 years later? I'm like, how could I not do this 11 years later? Like watching God move in this industry has been unbelievable. First he sings and then he goes. And what it means, it's hard to know. That's our show. Thanks for listening. Hey, listen, we just ordered a newsletter. It goes out every week with info on upcoming episodes, exclusive content, and a column by me. You can subscribe today at cultivatedpodcast.com. Our episode today was recorded and edited by TJ Hester. It was produced by me. It was mixed by Mark Owens. Our music is by Roman Candle and Dan Phelps. Dan actually has a great new record out called Vessel, and it's at oceanographicrecords.bandcamp.com. You can learn more about Scarlet Hope at scarlethope.org, where you can donate, or if you live near Louisville, you can sign up to attend their annual fundraising gala this fall. Thanks again to our sponsor, the Christian Standard Bible. Check it out at csbible.com. We'll see you next week. This episode was brought to you in part by the Compelled Podcast, which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.